I'm sitting here with Hart Littell, our Division Director for Disaster Response here at Catholic Charities of Acadiana. Did you ever think in your wildest dreams, imaginations, or dreams <laughs> that you would be sitting in this seat as a chief over responding to disaster? Never in a dream or an idea or in a dream did I think I would be sitting in the seat. No, I, you know, it was really funny whenever um, I started having conversations about uh, working over here, um, I actually rejected the notion of it, you know, because the Lord... Why is that? Well, because I was a family missions company and knew that the Lord had given me a heart for third world poverty. Um, And I suppose there was a degree of ignorance about um, what poverty looks like here in the States. Um, But in my mind, it was was definitely me in another country uh, pursuing third world poverty. So because of that, um, Catholic Charities was just off my radar. What was the breaking point? What was the... Uh, how did your did your heart change? Did the situation change? Like, yeah. So the the yes initially came when I was talking with uh, with the chiefs over here. The yes came because I, I could feel the Lord putting it on my heart, um, and I knew it was the Lord putting it on my heart because um, <laughs> we had two meetings scheduled: one for thirty minutes, one for an hour. Each one took five hours. Um, <laughs> I asked I asked a ton of questions. I explained why. Well, you know, this is why I may not be your guy. This is, and at the end of it all the Lord was just saying yes. Um, so that was wonderful. And then after all of the meetings were done and all the particulars we could possibly work out were finished, uh, I said, I'm your guy. We shook hands, hugged, prayed. And then, um, I said, also, uh, I should have asked how much does this pay? <laughs> but I, I, it was a hundred percent God. Yeah, you were yeah. in, yeah. you were all in, um, and disaster. Like, do you coming into being chief and leading and managing and accounting for the response of Catholic charities on behalf of the Diocese of Lafayette. You know, we are the official disaster response agency of the diocese through Catholic charities. Did you have any disaster experience coming into this role? Hmm. Yeah. So not only am I a lifelong resident of Lafayette, Louisiana, (laughs) which which, yes, that's a prereq. It is. I remember in college, uh, I was waiting tables at Gallagher's restaurant. Um, they're they're not one of our sponsors, by the way, I think I should raise your hand if you've ever heard of Gallagher's restaurant. Oh, come on now. I can think of some great people who waited tables and ate there. Uh, but yeah, I remember, um, going for a shift one day, waiting tables, some, somebody came in, some woman came in. I've got a guy with a crane in front of my house, but he doesn't have anybody who can rig it while he works the crane. So I was like, well, look, I get off in two hours. I'll climb the tree, climb your house. And so it's, it was the typical disaster response stuff that I think uh, people in this area do just because we live down here and love each other. Um, but I was also um, in 2005, right after Hurricane Katrina, I found myself offshore on a commercial diving vessel uh, where I actually had to ride out Hurricane Katrina on a 117 foot vessel uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. Is that Rita? That was Rita. It was um, how do I how do I say this? I'll be offensive to anybody. We were of the opinion two hurricanes rarely hit back to back. Yeah, you know. So we're yeah. like, no, we already had a hurricane. We're we're good to go. Well, work in the Gulf, and, and, and we're roughly the same age. You know, uh, early forties. 
And so that's that's how that's our experience. Yeah, is there was Hurricane Andrew, then there w- really wasn't for a good you know ten fifteen years. Yeah, then there was Hurricane Katrina, and you think to yourself, well, I guess I guess we're done for. Yeah, another scratch 10 it off the years. list. We yeah. did it. Yeah, um, and sure enough, within a couple months, this thing would come in, and we were still surveying damage uh, from Hurricane Katrina. I remember <clears throat> again, it was a diving vessel, but we're sending robots, kind of like from Titanic. You know, mm-hmm. they went down to, and they they have video of stuff, and we're we're, we're sitting in the Gulf of Mexico over a spot where a, a rig should be. And I see this cool spiral staircase leading up to the, you know, from the bottom of the rig to the top. And I was like, when did they start putting spiral staircases on on rigs? Like, that was a straight staircase before Hurricane Katrina came. Oh, now it's wrapped a lot around oh. the legs of the... <laughs> I mean, so the, 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 the sheer power of a storm... I remember just being in awe for about 40-something days, like, oh, my gosh, this is this is what a storm looks like when it comes straight out the Gulf of Mexico. No barrier islands have slowed it down. No uh, landfall, no trees, nothing slowed this thing down. This thing just comes in ripping. Yeah. And, uh, and within, you know, a couple months, I would be in one in the Gulf of Mexico uh, for Hurricane Rita. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a terrifying experience, to say the least, but um, I made it. God is good. And uh, it what that did for me, though, is it it, um, it set a new neutral for me for what's acceptable in disaster. You know, where, um, I mean, I'm not pretending to be any tougher than I am, but after seeing some things, um, I just don't get as excitable anymore whenever the weather gets rough. Yeah, uh, you're able to execute, make decisions and not respond uh, out of your fears or those kind of things. That yeah, that gives you that gives you a major leg up coming into this and and saying this. I've been here for five years and I've lived through a couple of disasters, but still, not, none of them are like the other one. That's correct. Um, and so the 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 thought of being able to plan and prepare for it, you, it's like throwing punches underwater. You you just don't know. That's where, it. Where's it coming from? Where, who is it? Where is it? And so, did that give you? Uh, did that give you any pause coming into being in this role? It didn't give me pause. It it was it was actually kind of exciting um, because if there's one thing I do know about myself is under those kind of circumstances, I execute and perform very well with a very cool head. With that being said. That doesn't mean that nothing's happening to me emotionally, you know, taking in some of the stress and the damage and especially people who, who are not as cool. Um, just just taking on their anxiety and trying to um, trying to love them and coach them through it. Uh, it takes a toll. So yeah. I do emote eventually. And when I do, it's a lot. <laughs> but uh, but in the moment. Um, the, the way we always said it when the when the bombs are going off and you're you're pulling bodies from the rubble um, that it's in those moments when I'm unusually cool and then the emoting happens later so it, yeah it's a it's a very good skill to have uh, um, asterisk as long as you make sure you manage it later <laughs> otherwise it just it bottles up inside yeah. you know and self-care for all of the disaster conferences and training that that we've been through. Uh, self-care is often something that is uh, overlooked mm. or it's it's not even paid attention to at all. Sure. You get 30, 45, 60 days mm. after a major disaster and people start falling apart and the, it's because they've been working every day. Yeah, and that's one of the best things uh, I've found about uh, Catholic Charities, at least as an employee, is 
Um, it's a culture that says, hey, you need to take self-care days as opposed to companies that put them on the calendar and then socially, culturally, you looked at as the, the weak guy because you actually took mm. the, the available time off. But, but to have supervisors and people um, leaning in and saying, hey, uh, I noticed you didn't take your time off. Um, because I care about you, I'm, I'm going to insist that you do. Yeah. That's a beautiful work environment. I, I've never been in this environment before. Um, well, he, yeah, with, with that with that kind of attitude towards self-care. Yeah. Here you are. Um, we're, we're coming up on another hurricane season, um, but I'm, I'm thinking back to you coming on board in early August, mm. so roughly 28, 29 days later, mm. um, Hurricane Ida you know, bruise into the Gulf. Hmm. What's going through your head? Yeah. So the first thing was <laughs> when I started, it was such a, such a whirlwind and uh, I apologize for overlapping weather puns, um, but it really was, <laughs> there was so much coming at me because I didn't realize how involved Catholic Charities was uh, uh, politically. Uh, so going into the EOC, which is the Emergency Operations Center, um, making calls and decisions and taking responsibility for things that the mayor, the chief chief of police, Louisiana National Guard, all these people are, are trying to execute um, with the, how proficient they are and how capable they are, but also how limited they are with the interaction with the public. So um, there's definitely access that um, civilians have and, and NGOs have that they don't. So um, I had never seen any of this before. So <laughs> walking into a room full of suits, um, I say suits, not, nobody's wearing a suit. It was all caps and, and disaster stuff, but people with some serious titles around here, uh, you know, I went from being at a, a foreign missions company to within about a month, I'm, I'm sitting with some, some pretty serious officials here and having to make decisions uh, on a level that really kind of needs to be executed well for the sake of the company and the people we, rep we represent. So that was intimidating. And then immediately after uh, being in the EOC and, uh, and being around these officials, uh, it was within two days that Ida would make landfall in home of Thibodeau. And now we were actively deploying. So it was just such a, such a change in, uh, in mentality. And also, I mean, the whole time I'm, I'm wondering, like, did I do it right? Did I say it right? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, it's a, I went from almost like administrative kind of boardroomy to, all right, it's time to get down and dirty and respond, yeah. you know? So, uh, so I think it was about on four o'clock on Saturday when we realized in the EOC that it wasn't going to hit us, the storm wasn't going to hit us. Um, and then by Monday or Tuesday, we were already deploying into Ida. And so it was, it was definitely one of those take off, the, take off the, the coat and put on the, the rain boots. That's right. You, you rode out Hurricane Rita in a boat. Mm. And so you got off that boat and, and got to your vehicle and, and left after that. Mm. You didn't stick around to find out what else was going on. Fast forward 15 years to the day that you first got in a truck and rolled south mm -hmm. on Highway 90 toward Homa, Lafouche, and Grand Isle. What's going through your head? What are you seeing? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, you know what it is? is it's, um, they, they say in the movies, the scariest moment in the movie is when you see the attacker, the killer, the monster, the alien, whatever, coming at the victim, and then they pause, they cut, 
and there's that one second and all of a sudden they just start a new scene. And supposedly that's the scariest moment in a movie because you don't actually see what happens. Your imagination takes it as far as it can go. Mm-hmm. And that's terrifying. Mm-hmm. It's more scary to, to be left to your imagination for that one second than for you to actually have a director or producer show you what's actually happening. So similarly, um, we started getting reports because of uh, years of fishing uh, in Grand Isle. A lot of those commercial fishermen are also members of the police department, the fire department. So these are all connections I just have on my phone. So I'm getting reports from these guys um, unofficially as to what's happening. You know, they thought that maybe there were seven people left on the island by the time the storm was over. They had collected, the fire department had collected uh, 28 people in Grand Isle. So they, it's that kind of thing. Uh, And then of the 28 people that were there, they're telling stories. Well, we knew Mr. So-and-so was at his house. Now we can't find him. Oh, gosh. You know, so you're you're pulling in stories of... of, um, of wondering what if, um, without getting too graphic, there's definitely reports of death from mm-hmm. people who should have uh, evacuated, um, specifically in areas that I knew we were headed toward that day. So it, my imagination's running. Like, am I prepared to see what's coming? Am I? Um, uh, do I have what it takes? You know, just from a, a inside of my gut, inside of my being, I'm pretty sure I do. But Lord, guide me. Um, so this that that drive to. Thank God there was a truck full of nervous people, <laughs> so we get to work out our anxiety on each other and yeah. and pray and and kind of uh, suppose and what if on our way there. So we get there and uh, we immediately uh, met with the clergy um, in home of Thibodeau with Bishop Fob, who's now Archbishop of Kentucky. Um, and we checked on them to make sure they were okay. They had a great spot with, uh, with generators with electricity. But right after that, uh, after making a plan with them and, and figuring out which priests had parishes that were ideal for points of distribution, we went to work. Um, and it was getting to those parishes, those church parishes, that is, where the brunt and the of the devastation became real apparent. So did it get worse the further south? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, like you you went to Homa mm-hmm. and then from there it just got worse. Yeah, so the the place we met up was the Lumen Christie Center in Shriver. So that was like maybe 3 miles off of 90. And then after that you really go in south. Once you start once you take that exit, I think it was 311. I should know by now because I did it 5,000 times in the yeah. next couple months. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, it was when I started going south, <clears throat> at first you're seeing down trees, you're seeing houses without shingles. And eventually, by the time you get to Galliano, there's streets that are just splinters. You know, you can't, you can't tell where the, the lots are, where the road starts. Sometimes you can see a stop sign sticking up, maybe, or a post where a stop sign should be. And then just, it looked like a, a bull ran through a lumber yard, just nothing, you know? Um, and so it was, it was seeing those things slowly and surely. And when I say slowly, I mean very slowly because to paint the picture a little bit, uh, there's no GPS. Um, so everything is kind of maps. And in our case, we would take people from the area with us in the vehicles to kind of show us around. We, we didn't know where we were going. Um, what about street signs? What about, yeah, I know the lights were out. Lights are definitely out. So everything's a four-way stop. And then you uh, <laughs> roll down the window, ask a cop for directions and he's got this, hey, man, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know where that is. And I'm like, where the heck? That is not, that's not a Homo Thibodeau accent. Where was he from? He's in from uh, somewhere in northern Arkansas. Oh, they, wow. they bring in cops from everywhere to restore order. Oh, wow. So not a single person over there that I spoke to on 
the way to various destinations, had any idea where anybody was. Add on top of that, you've got women, uh, uh, or a woman in particular, uh, she runs up to one of these cops who doesn't know anything. She's frantic, wants to know where her baby is. Well, what, what could possibly be wrong with this lady, you know? Well, what's wrong with her is that um, at the last minute, when the hospitals realized the generators were failing, they evac'd all the kids, uh, air evacuated all the, the kids in, in the NICU uh, to various hospitals in Texas and Shreveport. Oh, wow. So now that it's the hospital's responsibility to call um, the parents and let them know what's going on, Cell phones are out. Oh gosh! So you got you got. There's this. So it's the eeriest. It is the eeriest backdrop, where there's an odd silence because there's no hum of city noise. There's no there's no electricity. There's no nothing, um, and there is just this air of anxiety and fear and unknowing and and suspense, um, and that that the way I say it is, is, you know, if you sit down with your buddies and y'all throwing clays and y'all shooting them in the backyard, or maybe you're going duck hunting, that's one thing. You're a good shot. But, but when the whole environment changes, when everything, everything you practice, everything you think is just, there's a weirdness about it. There's a, there's an intensity, there's a tension. How, how well can a person perform? And that's what we drove into. And it was palpable. It was, it was tension juxtaposed by silence. And it was it was deafening for sure. Uh, so yeah, so going down trying to help out those people, uh, we deployed um, a few times with chainsaws. One time in particular was well documented. Uh, met in the St. Pius parking lot. Uh, I think about fifty guys with chainsaws went down there, front end loaders to help people. Um, we were working in conjunction with the Louisiana National Guard and the fire department, and they would take one street, we would take another. Um, special shout out to John Corey, uh, because as he would as he would aid in removing trees from people's houses, we had a team behind him that would go and tarp. So we really we, we made a big impact early on. Um, praise God! But I think notable there too is once we tarped a roof, and this is what was so important to me, once we tarped a roof, um, again, I'm performing well, I'm executing well, because that's just kind of who I am at this point under serious circumstances. No water, no food, except for what we brought with us. Um, But we're executing real well. And it was, it's it's one of the greatest sort of metaphors that I think I've lived uh, in 40 years is I'm literally coming down off of a roof with heat exhaustion. I'd stopped sweating, I got cold, in the middle of a Louisiana mm-hmm. summer, you know, and as I'm coming down off of this roof, you know, um, I encounter the man whose house I'm tarping and he's an older guy, 90 something years old. And he's just, uh, he's so grateful that we're there. Um, and I guess what I'm saying is that coming down, that coming down from, I'm working, 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 performing. And then all of a sudden I see the people, I see the person, I see mm-hmm. the human being who God loves so much that's who I'm helping. And I get to pray with this guy and remind him that the Lord loves him so much. And literally when I I spoke the word, ended up praying this prayer more times than I can count in disaster, but praying the prayer, Jesus, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for not abandoning us. And when I say the word abandoned, the tears that came from these people's eyes, you know, just, just to, just to be reminded that he loves them and he hasn't abandoned them. Cause that's all they felt, mm-hmm. you know, single mom, three kids running around, uh, they're in blissful ignorance, you know, mom's got it all taken care of. We're good. Let's go play in the, the new pile of stuff. Mom is in terror. I mean, she, where's her next meal going to come from? Not just hers, but her three kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so to just, just 
grab a couple volunteers. Hey, ma'am, do you mind if we pray with you? Thank you so much for helping. That's all good. Can we pray with you? And then to speak the words, he loves you so much. You're not abandoned. Poor woman would, would just break. Um, and what was cool, too, is because we're Catholic Charities and we're here not just for the initial response, but we're here for the, the marathon, the long haul. Yeah. I could say with confidence you're not abandoned. Even if I personally am not coming back tomorrow, I'm sending a food crew who's going to feed a 1,000 people right next door to you. I'm sending tarps. I'm sending here's some, a list of numbers when the cell phones get back up. Call these people. They'll be ready to go. Uh, there was always a, a good line of, of communication to where I'm not just praying this thing in the moment to make people feel good, but we mm-hmm. could back it up. Mm-hmm. And that's very refreshing. Mm. Praying and working and rinsing and repeating. Coming yeah. Right back the next day or, or setting up a, uh, setting up a process where those volunteers are coming in. Mm. And then eventually where it is right now, a lot of that has been kind of handed over to those who are local, mm-hmm. which is that, that is, that's the, that's how it works the best. Mm-hmm. Um, does it, even though there's a lot of work that's left to be done in long-term recovery for that area, we look back at disasters that have of, of yesteryear, it's going to be years, mm. it's gonna be years for them to finally take care of folks who have fallen in the cracks, people who have um, special needs. Does it make you think about our area, Acadiana? And kind of what do we need to get in line before that next one comes? Absolutely. That, that's all I could think. And um, as I would go into Homa Thibodeau, I mean, from Grand Isle to, to 90, um, I remember writing down things like, I can't believe they don't have X, Y, and Z in place. And then coming back here and realizing like, oh, wow. Uh, I don't. I don't know if Lafayette has that kind of plan in place. I mean, it's, and I'm not pointing fingers. It's, no. it, it speaks to the the sort of it's random. Out, it's out of sight and it's out of mind. And most of the days in the spring and fall and winter, for the most part, are beautiful days. Yeah. And it's hard to think about disaster when it's beautiful outside. Yeah. Plus, plus add to the the fact that you really can't predict how and what kind of disaster you're going to have. Every single one, two category three hurricanes are going to be completely different. It just is what it is. So I learned the most important thing is, is willing people ready to volunteer. Mm-hmm. If we've got, if we've got an army of people willing to volunteer and then uh, tackle whatever task presents itself, we're going to be fine. But for me to prepare for uh, a tornado is going to come, it's going to hit a gas station, it's going to blow up half a neighborhood. So we got to have that team in place. Yeah. That's, that's a waste of time and personnel and planning because yeah. that could never happen or it'll happen once and 100 years later, maybe it'll happen again. But to have a willing team, um, diocesan wide, um, a few people in each church parish or a few people in each municipal parish ready to get out there and serve and, and get the work done, I think we can accomplish a lot. I think we can minimize that early uh, response stage and hopefully move quicker into long-term recovery um, through assessing damages and, and um, knowing where to put volunteer groups as they pour in. And when we say diocesan why we're talking about the civil parishes. We're talking about Evangeline Parish, St. Landry Parish, mm-hmm. Lafayette, St. Martin, Iberia, Vermilion, Acadia, mm. and a little bit of St. Mary. But that area, there are vulnerabilities 
that present themselves in all those areas. North of Lafayette, kind of Acadiana proper, mm-hmm. you've got more threat of tornadoes. tornadoes. Yeah. South of here, you've got more threat of flooding. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's going to be different. It's going to be it's going to be different for uh, for each disaster scenario, but in an ideal world, mm. um, what would that look like right now for someone to raise their hand and say, "Hey, I mean, if it happens, I mean, what what do I do?" Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, in an ideal world, um, if I was stepping into a, a situation that had been custom fit already and I didn't have to build a thing, I would already have for each actual church parish. Keep in mind, we have 122 of them. I think once you add. Uh, mission parishes were in like the 140s. But I would have one or two people at every single church parish uh, who just knows people. One or two person who any time, you know, the, the priest or the administrator wants to put together a fundraiser, like, oh, you better make sure you call Mr. Jim. Mr. Jim, because he knows everybody. He's going to get his buddies. I want one or two people at every single church parish who just kind of can get out there, can connect people, can uh, re- bring information back to me. Because here's here's what happened in, in, in Ida was we had an arborist come in, I think, from North Carolina. The guy had a truck mm-hmm. that was about as long as my house that could grab a tree and cut it up. Uh, in about five minutes by itself, all from remote control. That guy sat in a parking lot for two days. He was only here for seven days. He sat in a parking lot for two days while he was down here because he didn't know where to go. Oh, gosh. And he, his truck was too big to go driving up and down streets and exploring on his own. And so uh, I go down there and with a list of, of names and addresses that we had acquired in Acadiana because Homa Thibodeau was too busy dealing with the disaster. So I want a couple people who um, have already reported back to me, hey, if you get a hold of a tree guy, if you get a hold of um, a muck and gut crew who can come do mold remediation ASAP, because these volunteers are pouring in hours after the storm. Um, I want people who can report information back to me so I can serve people quickly. That would be ideal. So right now I'm working to build up that, that group of people. People to raise their hand, uh, people to be ready, possibly to be trained oh, yes. in something a little more skilled, mm. um, like going into a disaster, being able to respond immediately mm. and, and send out a crew of people with chainsaws. Yes. That's a big one. Because I'm 40 years old, you already went over this one, but because I'm 40, I forget that everybody, every Boudreaux, every Fontenot, uh, I assume that everybody with that last name can either swim and uh, drive a standard and work a chainsaw. (laughs) (laughs) That's not necessarily the case anymore, you know? So yeah, to have people who who feel comfortable with with, uh, equipment like that, and again, back to that backdrop of of, of what it looks like in disaster, when we deployed, which should have been about two and a half hours away, but because of the traffic situation was about four and a half hours away. Uh, deep down Galliano, um, a chainsaw injury when there's no hospitals, when there's no traffic signals, when there's no police escort, a chainsaw incident can be fatal. Oh, so gosh, here I am yes. calling people who can sew, every doctor, every dentist, everybody who knows how to sew to go down with my chainsaw crews just to be ready. Um, so the, the better prepared we are with people familiar with the equipment they're using, the, the better off the recovery process is. Poke a hole in this. Mm. Where was the church mm. when disaster hit? Well, I, the church was was uh, was so present. And in fact, it was Bishop Fobb. Um, he got on one of these podcasts shortly after uh, the storm hit, and some guy asked, "How's the church?" You know, how, and what the guy was asking him was like, "How did your buildings do?" And Fobb goes, "Well, first off, the church is the people, and my people are hurting." Wow. So that was beautiful. So just just the acknowledgement from the top down, like we. 
we, our focus is to help people. Um, and the church responded well. There wasn't a priest that I talked to either in the Diocese of Lafayette or in the Diocese of Homotibido who wasn't ready, willing, and able to assist Catholic charities with whatever we needed to help them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the church was very active. It was beautiful, too, to see the greater ecumenical church working as well. Uh, when we reached out um, as I guess what I witnessed is there were some some big kind of national groups that came down, and the Catholic Church had their own national groups that came down as well. Um, but for the most part, Catholic Charities seemed to be one of the bigger responding agencies uh, from Acadiana and in uh, the Diocese of Homa Thibodeau, and everybody just played so beautifully together, which speaks exactly into what, what I was looking for whenever I was uh, working with the foreign missions company. One thing I love about foreign mission, one of the reasons why I have a heart for third world poverty, is whenever whenever you're staring at such um, deprivation, um, all the divisions that we put between ourselves, these man-made um, separations just sort of disappear because you just want to love people and help them, let them know the Lord loves them. How can I feed you? How can I help you? How can I clothe you? And how can I pray with you right now? What, yeah. what does your heart need? Um, and right. I had this heart for third world poverty, right? And I thought for some reason in my mind, uh, the only place to find that sort of pure open heart is in third world countries. Sure enough, I go down to Homa Thibodeau and boy, did I encounter third world poverty. The difference is that... Um, in other countries, it's generational third world, third world poverty. You know, it's generation after generation. Uh, in the situation I was in, in Homa Thibodeau, we're dealing with situational third world poverty. And I don't mean to compare woes here, but oftentimes in generational third world poverty, you've got a, a sort of system in place um, where people know how to handle it, know how to deal with it. In situational third world poverty, uh, nobody has any idea how to manage or mitigate this? Who do you reach out to? Which government agencies are available? And if they're available, because I have no electricity, how do I get a hold of them? It was it was a, a totally new kind of deprivation. And uh, when I realized that, I was actually in the big Catholic Charities Dooley. Uh, I was driving and I broke out in tears. I, I, I was like, I cannot believe you did this, Lord, because I had a um, you know I have a, a background of um, experiencing disaster to one degree or another. Excuse me. I had an uh, 11 to 15 year, depending on how you, you counted up, um, career in general contracting. So I know how to rebuild houses and put them back together after a storm. And then I had a four year stint working for a missions company where I just I had a heart for third world poverty and I can love people and um, bring the hardworking poor um, whenever they're at a spot where they just can't seem to to push through the ceiling, I can sort of aid them in, in bringing them to the next step. And so I'm, I'm looking over my shoulder, realizing, Lord, you have led me to this point um, with a very unique set of skills that really helps uh, people to recover in disaster. Um, but third world poverty, I still, I'm still not in disbelief. I'm just still in awe that the Lord's got me here right now. I'm very, very thankful for it. So Catholic Charities of Acadiana has 12, 13 programs mostly engaging folks who are in some kind of experience of homelessness, hunger, or, or poverty. Often people will ask me, disaster, why disaster? It seems like it doesn't fit, mm. but it does. Mm. Why? Because because there's so much suffering. And the Lord calls us into compassion. 
compassion, if you break down the words compassion, to suffer with. Um, you see it throughout Scripture. Um, you see our Lord doing just this. What, what business does God have coming down to earth suffering with his people except that he loves us so much, then it starts to make perfect sense. So then the question I would ask anybody who volunteers in disaster, and they can, they can answer it already for you, even if they can't put it down phonetically perfect, but why are you here? Why are you in the middle of nowhere with a chainsaw? And the answer is going to be, because I have to go suffer with these people. You know, th- this is the gospel. And, and there's a purity about it too. You know, you can, we can pretend sometimes from the boardroom that we're helping or we're sending this much money, but it was just our excess. But when you're down there sweating and, and bleeding in the elements with people who have nothing, you are suffering with them. And nothing bonds a group of people together. Nothing unites a church, a group, uh, I don't care what it is. When you can get down there in the pits with people and just suffer with them, um, and in that weakness and in your helplessness, thank you, St. Paul, it's, it's, it's here in my, in my ineptitude, in my inability that Christ reigns all the more because I don't have the answers. So not only are you receiving the Lord so beautifully, but you're also his hands and feet in that moment, and you're just suffering with people, and it's quite beautiful. I'm Ben Broussard with Catholic Charities of Acadiana, and this was a conversation with my friend and colleague, Hart Littell who is the Division Director for Disaster Response at Catholic Charities of Acadiana. We talked about how God led him to lead in disaster, his experiences that led him here, and how our response to the suffering in disaster is actually the gospel played out in today's world. You've been listening to The Need to Serve, a production of Catholic Charities of Acadiana. Catholic Charities of Acadiana cares for the sacred gift of all human life, especially the most vulnerable. You can learn more about us and our programs at catholiccharitiesacadiana.org. You got a question for me, shoot me an email, ben at catholiccharitiesacadiana.org. Till next time, I'm your host, Ben Broussard. We'll see you.